0: As many of you know i played football at mercer when i was there several years ago and then after we graduated they did something where they invited the players back and said hey we want you guys to come to the games we want you to be a part of them and we'll even give you tickets and sideline passes to the games and so that's pretty cool and so the first time they they did that they welcomed us back and we got our tickets got our sideline passes there's this little access card that said that we could be on the field because no one was allowed on the field except for the coaches, players, like the people with the team, and then those who had that access card. And so we went to the game and we were watching it, had several teammates on the sidelines. And there was this one teammate in particular, that he was a little bit um, belligerent that day. Um, he is known for that. He had had some drinks that day, which again, he was known for doing. And he was on the sideline during the game, the game had already started, and someone noticed that he didn't have his card. And so someone who was official and and there with the team went and saw he didn't have his card and said, hey, uh, you can't be on the sideline, you don't have a card. And he, of course, didn't like that. And so he said, no, I'm staying here on the sideline. And he's like, I've got a card, it's just in my car. And they said, oh, well, that's great, just go get your card and you can come back. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. And so again, he was belligerent. He was raising the temperature a little bit and started arguing with them. And they're like, listen, sir, if you would just go get your card, you could come back. It's not a big deal. We just You have to have that card. We can't let just anyone have access to the field. You have to have that card to be able to be here on the sidelines. Well, he kept raising the temperature, started screaming, getting more and more belligerent as the game is still going on, uh, this is happening. And eventually it gets so bad that they had to call the authorities down to come and deal with him. And at one point I was sitting there listening to all this happening, all of our teammates were just shaking our heads. And he's sitting there yelling and he's yelling at these cops. And I hear him say something like, my dad's a lawyer and he's gonna have your job and he's gonna have your job. And He's like touching the cops. You're like, this is not gonna go well. This is not ending well for you. And eventually it got so bad that they had to escort him out in handcuffs and they arrested him. And he spent the night in jail that night. So here's the thing, all he needed, Was to have access with that card to be on the field. He had access, but because of his stubbornness, he lost out on that opportunity and ended up not being able to stay there on the field, not being able to gain access to the field that day. And since then, we haven't been invited back to stay on the field. So we watch the game from from the stands now with everyone else because of this guy. But here's why I tell you this tonight we're gonna be in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk about who has access to the kingdom of God and who does not. So that's where we're going tonight. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to John chapter 3. We are continuing our series through the book of John that we've titled Come and See. And on the heels of our passage tonight, we've seen Jesus begin his ministry. He's called disciples. He's Perform signs and miracles such as the the wine or water to wine miracle, and then we've also seen him flip tables in the temple because they had turned it into a marketplace and they had crowded out the place where the Gentiles came to worship, and and Jesus says no no you're not going to inhibit the worship of anyone, and so he drove them out, flipped the tables, and when he did this, it's safe to say that the religious leaders did not care for Jesus all that much, that the religious leaders. All they know is this guy steps onto the scene. He starts rebuking people and making some bold claims, and they don't know what to do with it. And he started challenging their practices and challenging their, their authority, and they didn't really like it too much. And they didn't know what to do with it. And so now we're transitioning to a point in John where he's about to begin having some personal conversations with people. And the first conversation he has is with one of these religious leaders. And so, what I want to do tonight is I want us just to walk through the verses in John chapter 3, and we're going to read through them, and we'll pause and talk through them and try to see what it is that God's word has for us in these passages. So, if you will, turn to John chapter 3, and we'll start reading in the first two verses John 1, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So just pause there for a second. We're introduced to the man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader of the day. He would have known the Old Testament, which is what they had. He would have known it well. He would have memorized large portions of it. He taught this. He would have kept The law, and he would have kept all the many, many rules on top of the law that the religious leaders had put on top of it. And he was seen as a man with status, seen as a man who was close to God. And on top of this, he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin because he was a ruler. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council. So they governed the people. And so this man, Nicodemus, he goes and he meets with Jesus by night potentially by night because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. That could be a reason, but he goes and he has a conversation with Jesus. Why? Because of all the things that Jesus was doing, he recognized and said, okay, this man has to be from God that he couldn't just ignore what Jesus was doing. He couldn't just sweep it to the side and dismiss it. Jesus was saying things and doing things that they just could not ignore. It had to be addressed. And can I say that we can't just ignore it either? That this man, Jesus, this person, no one has shaped history like he has. Like, even if you are not a religious person, even if you don't claim faith in Jesus, you cannot deny the reality that no one has shaped the course of history and shaped mankind like this man. Over a third of the population would at least ascribe to Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that they're all Christians. You can claim anything, but they at least ascribe to it. And then out of the other major world religions, many of them hold Jesus in esteem, saying that they might not have said he was God and and the things that he said he was, but they would say he was a mighty prophet or a good teacher. And so the world has been shaped fundamentally by Jesus. And so it would be foolish for us to just dismiss him and ignore him without seeing what the Bible says about him. So Nicodemus, he seeks out Jesus to try to learn more of of who he is and what he's about. And he says, only someone from God could do the things that you were doing and say the things that you were saying. He recognized there was something special about him. And it wasn't just him. There's a, a we there. And we don't know if it's just his disciples or if it's some other religious leaders. But they're taking notice of Jesus. And so they seek him out and have a conversation with him. And in this conversation, Jesus is going to jump straight to the heart of it all. Continuing reading in verses 3 through 5, it says this, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus gets straight to the point with him. He said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. And so there's four questions I want to ask while we're studying this text. And these are the four questions. What is the Kingdom of God? How can we enter into the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be born again? And how can we be born again? So what is the kingdom of God? How can we enter the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be born again? And how can we be born again? So Jesus jumped straight to the heart of what He was asking. So so the question, what is the kingdom of God? What is He saying? What does He mean when He says, to be, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Well, in short, the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. It's absolutely a place. There's a dominion there, but it's more than just a place. It's the very rule and reign of God. See John the Baptist, who we talked about earlier this semester, John the Baptist was proclaiming that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was near. In fact, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was here. And Jesus was the one ushering in the very kingdom of God. And to better understand what it means when he says the kingdom of God, I think it's helpful for us to think through the very character of God. So when we think of the character of God, we think of him and his goodness. We think of his justice, that he doesn't let wickedness and evil go unpunished. We think of his kindness kindness. His gentleness. We think of his love. We think of his grace. We think of his mercy. We think of the joy that comes from him. We think of the attributes of God, and it's helpful to think of these attributes because his reign displays these attributes. This is the kind of ruler we want. We want a king that is just. We want a king that is powerful and sovereign over all things, that nothing falls outside the scope of his sovereignty. We want a God that is just and merciful and, and kind and just gentle. We want this kind of ruler. And so that is a part of the kingdom of God. It's also helpful to think of the bookends of time. It's helpful to think back to the beginning in Eden, and it's helpful to think forward to God's coming reign. In, in the beginning, when God created all things, and he placed man in the garden of Eden, all was good. All was as it should be. Everything was shalom, as the Old Testament would say it. It's peaceful. It's complete. It's as it should be. That he created man and there was joy and there was flourishing among creation that, in fact, it was so special. He created man in his very image. And God, who was the ruler of all things, appointed Adam and Eve, man and woman, mankind, to be his co-rulers to rule his dominion of earth, to rule over creation, that God would be over it all, but mankind was placed in a special position as priests, as princes, as princesses, to rule and govern his creation. It was a special place. But mankind was not content with this. Mankind said, I don't want the kingdom and the rule of God. I want my own kingdom. I want self-rule. And so they rejected the rule of God, and they set out to build their own kingdom in sin, in their rebellion. And when they rebelled against the kingdom of God, and they issued in their own kingdom, creation broke. It was fractured. And what we see in the kingdom of man now, the kingdom of this world, is that there's elements of the kingdom of God, most certainly. We see good things. We see flourishing in pockets of creation. We see happiness, we see beauty, but we also see so many horrible things. We see brokenness, we see suffering, we see pain, we see man hurting man, we see selfishness, we see lustful desires, we see all of these things that are horrible in what we see is a broken and shattered creation under the rule of mankind and see this all happens absolutely under God's sovereignty that he's still sovereign over it's not outside of his control but he has allowed mankind to run in their rebellion to see what it looks like to run from him from his goodness from his commandments and see what it looks like under their own rule but what I love about the Bible is the Bible promises that there will be a day where God will regain full control that he will usher once again in his perfect kingdom that he will come and he will bring judgment on the kingdom of man and he will set up his rule once again. And we see a picture of what that rule looks like at the end of your Bible in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, we hear God talking about how he's gonna dwell with man once again. And that in this dwelling, he will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more mourning. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, that there'll be no more tears. And ultimately the enemy of death, which has corrupted mankind and frightened mankind and attacked mankind, the enemy of death will be no more. That there'll be life and life in abundance under the rule and Lordship of God. That is the kingdom of God. And so John, he proclaimed of this kingdom coming and Jesus ushered in this kingdom. And what he's saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven, it's here. I'm here to bring it forth. So that's what the kingdom of God is. And so what what we learn with the kingdom of God is some will enter into this kingdom, but others will not. That when he sets up his kingdom once again, that his kingdom will come and will judge the world, but there will be some who enter into this kingdom with him, that he will dwell alongside them. So the question then is, how can we enter the kingdom of God? Who gets to enter into the kingdom of God when he institutes this? Well, one thing to think about is how did Nicodemus think that one entered the kingdom of God? Because Jesus corrects what he thinks. Nicodemus thought it was just by birth that you had to be born an Israelite. God in the Old Testament, we see he chooses a people. He sets them apart as his prized possession, as his children, as his royal priesthood. And, and so Nicodemus believed to be born into this Israelite family. So long as you did not reject God with your wickedness, so long as you did not blaspheme against God, you were destined for the kingdom of God. But Jesus, he says, no, that's not it. See, there's so many people even today that have so many assumptions about what it takes to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. For some, it doesn't look much different than Nicodemus. They ride the coattails of the faith of their grandparents or their parents. They think because their parents were religious or Christians that they too have entrance into the kingdom of God. For many, it looks like God saying, okay, God is a loving God. That's what what we believe. And so God being loving means that everyone gains entrance into the kingdom of God. And so anyone is going, there's no one who's left out. Or maybe some would elevate a little bit and say, okay, well, the worst of the worst people like Hitler he doesn't get in. Everyone else, they get in. Others will elevate it more than that and say, hey, you've got to be kind of a good person. You've got to do some moral things. You've got to do some religious things. Go to church. You've got to read your Bible some. You've got to be a nice person. Give money to people. They'll say these are the things that make us right with God to be in the kingdom of God. And the reality is many of us who, who are here in this room have assumptions on what it takes to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. There may be some or a few who coming in and you're like, "Ah, I don't really know about this whole God thing, if he's even there. So you don't really have assumptions, but for the vast majority of you, you're coming in for the reason of you believe that there is a God, that you believe the things of the Bible, you believe that there is this Christ. And so you have these assumptions on what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus He dispels all these assumptions, and he tells us that there is a way. And and what he says is, truly, truly, I say to you. That's a phrase that if we could kind of reword it in our own way, we'd say, hey, let me be very, very clear here. I want there to be no mistake on the truth that I am about to tell you. Truly, truly, I say to you, let me be clear. The only way into the kingdom of God is to be born again. So, so what does it mean? Well, Jesus is going to talk about is to be born of the Spirit. See, what, he doesn't, what Nicodemus doesn't realize is that God does have a people that he has called out, but not all of Israel was true Israel, is what Paul tells us in Romans 9. That, that not all of the Israelites were actually born again. That you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. He talks more about it in verses six through eight. It says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus says, hey, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm not talking about fleshly things. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. He said the reality that we see all throughout Scripture is that it's not just that we're some people who have some outward things that are kind of wrong with us. The reality is that we are all spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 is going to say that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. In Romans, it's going to say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And then the wages of those sin, the payment received for that sin is death. We are all spiritually dead. We're corrupted to our core. What it's going to tell us in Ezekiel is, is that we need the day when God will wash away our sins that he will remove our hearts of stone and replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh, that he would take our dead hearts and replace with his spirit, that he would breathe life into us once again, that we would be made spiritually alive. And he admits, he said, there's a mystery involved here. We, we can't quite wrap our brains about it. We, we, we don't fully understand the mechanism and how it all works together. And he points to the wind and how it gusts about. And he says, you don't quite understand how it works, but you can see its, its movement. You can see its effects. He says, so it is with the spirit. You don't quite understand how it fully works, but you can see the effects of it. You can see when it takes a dead heart and brings it to life. You can see the effects of the spirit regenerating a heart. So then the question then becomes... How do we become born again? So he says, you must be born again, and it's a spiritual rebirth. So how can we be born again? And Jesus, again, is going to tell us, and it's verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. I don't understand how this can happen. And Jesus is like, how are you the teacher of Israel? The one who knows the Old Testament so well, who has studied the scriptures, who have committed many of them to your memory and, and understand them, yet you're missing the whole point of them. What Jesus is saying, hey, the scriptures, they testify of me. That's what he tells them, some other religious leaders in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. He says, hey, you know all this Old Testament, like the back of your hand, yet you're completely missing that all of scripture is actually pointing of what I've come to do. It's all pointing to me. And then he's going to give them an example with that of the bronze serpent. Like when we read this, we're like, what do you mean Moses, wilderness, bronze serpent? What are you saying? Why would you bring that up? It feels like it's out of left field. And what it is, it's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, it's when God's people are in the wilderness, in the desert. And right before this, there's this battle that takes place. And the people cry out to God, please help us. Please save us. And if you save us, we'll, we'll walk with you. We'll obey you. And so God listens to their prayers, and he brings salvation to them. They win the victory. And then they're leaving, and they're walking. But it says, after a while, they grew impatient with God and with Moses. They said, you just brought us out of Egypt just so we'll die. And they said that they loathed the worthless food that they were getting. The worthless food that they were getting was manna from heaven. It was God providing for them, and they still turned their nose up at him. They hardened their hearts towards him, and they grumbled against him and in rebellion against Moses and, more importantly, against God. And so God sends a plague on them in their rebellion. And the plague was serpents that were sent to bite them. And it was a deadly bite. They're they're dropping left and right as they get bit by these serpents because of their rebellion. Yet God in His grace and in His mercy, He provided a way for them. He said, Moses, if you take and you forge a bronze snake and you put it on a staff and you hold it up, all who look to the snake will be healed and they will not die. That though they were struck with a deadly sentence, When they look in faith to the bronze serpent lifted up, they will not die. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's connecting, he's connecting himself to this passage. He says, just as the serpent was lifted up, so will the son of man be lifted up, so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. See, what he's pointing to is what he would do on the cross. That Jesus would go and he would be turned over to the hands of the religious leaders. He would be beaten. He would be flogged. He would be bloodied. And then he would be taken and he would be nailed down to a sinner's cross. And on that cross, he would be lifted up for all to see. And so he's connecting himself to this bronze serpent. The question, though, is why? Why would he do this? It tells us in the next few verses, verses I'm sure you've read or even memorized yourself, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in the world that he, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus allow himself to be crucified and hung on a cross for all to see? Well, it tells us right here, for God so loved the world. Maybe a better way of understanding this is how the NLT translates it. This is how God loved the world. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. Question, how do you know someone loves you? It's because they tell you because they demonstrate that love for you. How do I know Sarah loves me? Because she tells me, absolutely. She tells me, but she also demonstrates that love to me. She is kind to me. She encourages me. She sacrifices for me. She loves and cares for me. She demonstrates the love as she tells me she loves me, and so I know she loves me. How do you know God loves you? because he tells us in his word and his word is true. But even more than that, because he's demonstrated his great love for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross. God sent Jesus for you. God left his throne of glory, became a man because he loves you. That while you were still a sinner, While you were his very enemy, Christ came and died and suffered for you. How do you know God loves you? Because he's demonstrated it through the blood and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Why? So that whoever would believe in Jesus, whoever would cast their eyes on him, though they were sentenced with death because of their rebellion, yet they shall live that they will not perish, they will have everlasting life. And this perish, this dying, this is not talking about a physical death, this is talking about spiritual death. Though they will physically die, yet they shall live forever in eternity with their God. Their hearts will be born again. Though they were spiritually dead, they'll be regenerated. Their hearts will be replaced with a new heart, that God's spirit will dwell within them and give them life. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus. See, physical death is no longer a problem because of the spiritual life they have in Christ. And that's why Paul says, hey, to die is gain. Because to die means that I get to go and live with Christ forever. And it's not anything we do. It's not anything we've done, but it's solely the work of Jesus. I love the way Jonathan Edwards says, he says, you contributed nothing to your salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary. We turn and trust in Jesus and his finished work and what he did on the cross and what he did on our behalf. And we are born again. We are given new life. It tells us that Jesus came for salvation, not for condemnation. See, Jesus, he came into the world not to come and bring condemnation, but he came so that we could be saved. He came so that we should have life. And and make no mistake, we deserve condemnation. Like if you're telling an outside party who just doesn't know the full story and you're telling them that man rebelled against a holy God and that this holy God stepped down into this creation and moved towards mankind, you would not think that he came with grace. You would think he came with judgment. But Jesus came with grace. He came so that we could be saved. But there will be judgment. It goes on to say, finishing our verses in 18 through 21. lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's coming to judge. He will gather the people and he will judge the people. But for those who have believed in his name, been covered by his blood and by his sacrifice, When he sees them, he judges them not by their sin, but by his righteousness. And he says, come, inherit the kingdom of God. Come and dwell for eternity. He retrieves his bride. But for those who rejected him, those who did not believe in him, he says, depart from me. And he sends them to the eternal fire. So he says, light came into the world, but they love the darkness too much. That there will be many who reject the light. And when they reject God and they reject his light, let me be clear on this. He gives them exactly what they want. An eternity without his goodness, without his mercy, without his love. An eternity of judgment for the darkness that they chose. In Jesus, there's life. In Jesus, we gain access to the kingdom of God, but apart from him, we are left without hope. So to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again through believing in Jesus. This is the only way to gain access to the kingdom of God. It's through to be born again through believing in Jesus. So what does this mean for us? What do we take from this? To those of you who have been reborn by believing in Jesus, to those of you who have the spirit of God dwelling within you, and you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. What this means is you are a member of the kingdom. That you as a member of the kingdom should have a kingdom mindset. That you know that this world is not your home. You know that this life is short and brief, but you have an eternity that is secure. And so you live in light of the security that you are a son or a daughter of the king. You are royalty. And as a son or daughter of the king, as a member of the kingdom, you submit to the king. So what does your life look like? Does your life look more in line with the the way of this world and the kingdom of this world? Or does your life look like you are a subject of the king? We submit to our king, not because we we have to, but because we want to, because his ways are where we find true life. His ways are where we flourish. Remember that as a member of the kingdom, you are a representative of your king. That when those in this world interact with you, that you are an ambassador of the place where is your true home. And so we must live in that way. We are pointing others to this kingdom that is coming. We take the message of John and says, hey, repent, turn from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is here. Turn away, lest you perish, come and step into life. The invitation is open for all who would reject the darkness and embrace the light. You too can have spiritual life. That is the message that we proclaim. Follower of Jesus. Do you run forth with this message? Do you feel this message just coursing through your veins, sending you a great passion to be sent out into this world? It should. The gospel is an ultimate thing, but it's also a daily thing. That because we've memorized these verses, especially John 3:16, for so long, it can kind of fall numb on our hearts, but may it never be so. The gospel is what rejuvenates us daily. that that God did a new thing through Jesus and day after day after day, he does a new thing in your heart. His mercies are new for you every single morning. Never forget that you are a child of the King. There's others of you and you are still in darkness that maybe for your whole life, you've been rejecting the light. Maybe even for some of you, you look very much like Nicodemus you've read the scriptures, you've been in church, you've been around the churchy things, and yet you've missed who the scriptures are pointing to and what they're pointing to, which is Jesus and his finished work. But maybe for tonight, for the very first time, as engaging with God's word, his Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the sin in your hearts. He's opened your eyes to the reality that you are spiritually dead. My hope and my prayer is that, as your eyes are open to the reality that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath, that you would also believe the truth that Jesus came and he died for you and that he did not stay dead. He arose from the grave on the third day, conquering sin and conquering death. That if you would turn from your sin and look to Jesus, believing in who he is and what he did, believing that he's the son of God, Son of man, believing that, that he was perfect in every way and that he died on your behalf, then your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. That God's spirit comes in and indwells within you, that he removes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. He brings you to life. My hope and my prayer is that you would do this. The only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be born again through believing in Jesus.